Well, thanks, Daniel. Um, I'm excited to be here this morning and bring God's Word to us all, and uh, glad to be able to give Daniel a, a well-deserved break for, for a Sunday. Um, and happy Super Bowl Sunday to all of you as well. Um, so we're in the book of James, and um, James is one of the most direct and hard-hitting books in the entire Bible. You know, I said, uh, I think the first Sunday when I introduced Daniel's first message on it, that this is a real rubber-meets-the-road kind of book. And I introduced him last week and said that last week we were going to need to fasten our seatbelts. Well, this morning we're going to burn some rubber, okay? It's gonna, it, this is hard-hitting stuff God has to share with us. Um, James is a prime example of the truth of Hebrews 4.12, that God's Word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword, that it's able to pierce to the division of soul and spirit and joint and marrow and able to discern the intentions of our heart. So this is a very life-changing book, and we're looking at some life-changing verses this morning uh, that have been and continue to be in my own life uh, personally uh, very transformational and have for many Christians throughout the ages. You see, the primary concern of the book of James, and this will become clearer and clearer as we move into chapter 2, is not just what we believe, but whether our behavior matches our belief. The main point of the book is don't just say that you believe in Jesus, but show that you believe in him by how you behave. And we're going to see that this morning with respect to two very important topics, anger and obedience. You see, if we believe in Jesus, then we ought to start behaving more like him. God, by his grace and by his spirit, has made us Christians but he is also by his grace and his spirit calling us to start acting like the Christians that he has already made us. And that is why here at CCPV we have such a big emphasis on discipleship. It's why I love serving as the pastor of discipleship because discipleship is that process of closing the gap between what we believe, which is up here, and how our behavior matches that, which is usually down here. And it's a lifelong process, but it can start today for any one of us here to close that gap between belief and behavior. Now, I hope you all recognize that gap in your life, right? I mean, for instance, um, what we believe about God's love for us is up here, that, it, that it's unconditional, self-centered, sacrificial love, but what we show to others about that love is sometimes way down here, right? God wants to close that gap. For instance, what we believe about forgiveness that God has shown us is that, you know, He's completely forgiven us of all sins, past, present, and future, and yet the forgiveness we show to others often is, is way down here, and God would like to close that gap. Or, for instance, what we believe about grace, that it's a free gift, we don't have to earn it, what salvation is, we sometimes, we hold that up here, but we make others work their way back into grace with us. And so there's this gap between belief and behavior. So you may be thinking as I'm saying this, well, wait a minute, Rob, um, I thought God loves me just as I am. Yes, that's absolutely true, but it's equally as true that he loves you and me too much to leave us where we are. He wants to move us along. Imagine um, you're a parent, and you've got a two-year-old toddler, and you're looking out your kitchen window, and let's say it's a little baby boy, and he's He's playing in the sandbox, and he's got his Tonka trucks, and he's making castles and roads and highways and all this stuff. And you're looking at it going, oh, that's pretty impressive. Some great motor skills being developed there, some great sense of imagination. But how would you feel 
16 years later, if he's 18 and he's still sitting there in the sandbox doing the same thing, right? You'd be a little concerned, right? Something's out of whack here. And sometimes that's how God looks at us. He's saying, come on, let, let, let's, let's work on closing that gap. So it's my prayer that we come to God in faith this morning and ask him to give us his wisdom, not the world's wisdom, with respect to these topics in our text of anger and obedience. So let me just pray that he would do that now. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your word, Lord. We pray that it would do its work this morning in each of our hearts, Lord, my, my own included. Lord, that we would leave here changed, transformed, uh, and, and hopefully a little bit more like Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Open our eyes and ears and hearts, Lord, to receive your truth. Lord, tear down any barriers that we may try to build up to prevent that truth from soaking in. And may we leave, Lord, um, as people who are doers of your word, not just hearers only. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to take this a couple verses at a time. So if you turn to James chapter 1, um, we're going to start in verses 19 through 20. We're going to go all the way through to uh, verse 27. And the title of this whole message is, is Moving from Belief to Behavior. Moving from Belief to Behavior. So let's read verses 19 and 20 first. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. First thing to note here is as James brings us these tough topics, he does so as our equal, for he says brother there. Even though he was the half-brother of Jesus, as Daniel has explained to us, he doesn't address us in any type of condescending way. No doubt he struggled with these things that we're going to look at as well, with, with his own anger and his own obedience. And, and so he can relate to us. Um, he, he gets us. But no doubt James had also learned from his half-brother that there was a better way to live. And so that is what he is sharing with us here for our good and for God's glory. Verse 19 gives us the admonition of what we are to do, which is to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And then verse 20 gives us the why or the reason for that admonition, which is because our anger generally does not result in the righteousness of God. You see, God gets angry, but his anger is righteous. And we get angry, but it usually is not righteous. And so what James is starting off here, which is seen in all through Scripture, we'll look at in a minute, is that there are actually two types of anger as God sees it. There is godly anger or righteous anger, which is anger at the things God is angry at, which is sin. And then there is humanistic anger, which is generally not that. Rather, it's anger because we didn't get our way, somebody cut us off, uh, you know, someone got in our way and, and things aren't going the way we want it to go. One is righteous, the other does not approach the righteousness of God. Usually our anger attacks the sinner. God's anger instead attacks the sin. Our anger cares about what is best for us. God's anger cares about what is best for others and for his glory. You know, um, when God sees things that are an offense to him and, and not good for others, he does get angry. We even see that in, in the Gospels with Jesus twice, once at the beginning of his ministry and the other time at the end. Jesus gets angry in the temple 
and chases out the money changers because they're doing something in the place God said he would dwell with his people at that time that they're not supposed to be doing, and they're ripping off the people with their money changing. And so, yes, God gets angry at that. But human anger often flows out of one or more of the following things I'm going to share with you. It can flow out of a lack of surrender on our part to God, and we're fighting against him and his ways and the way that he has ordained things. It can flow out of a lack of contentment in God, and we're not satisfied with what he and his sovereignty has chosen to give us or what circumstances he's chosen to allow us to go through. Human anger can also flow out of a lack of God's eternal perspective on things. So our anger, as James says here, does not approach or get close to the righteousness of God. Now, brothers and sisters, anything that doesn't equal God's righteousness is what? It's sin. Absolutely right. It's sin. You can, you can say it. So humanistic anger is sin. Humanistic anger only came into existence after sin entered the world. It didn't exist when God created the Garden of Eden. After sin came, remember the first thing that happens? Cain gets angry at Abel. And then what does he do? murders him. Moses got angry at the people of Israel right before they were about to go in the promised land, and he struck the rock twice, the second time in anger. And God said, Moses, I'm not angry at these people, and you misrepresented me with your anger. And so what was the consequence for Moses? He didn't get to go into the promised land. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches about this, both with respect to anger and murder and lust and adultery. Now, we have an easier time, I think, both as men and women, grasping the, the principle in the lust and adultery one. So let me share it first, but it's the same thing with anger and murder. Remember, Jesus says there, speaking to this very religious, self-righteous crowd that externally had kept God's law, he says, you know, you've heard it said that thou shall not murder, or, or start with adultery, shall not commit adultery. And they're all sitting there going, I've never done that. You know, I'm, I'm pretty righteous. And then Jesus says, but wait a minute, if you've ever lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. You see, what he's saying there is that lust is the heart attitude inside of us that can, but doesn't always, because they had legal restraints then, not to mention societal restraints against it, result in the act of adultery. And so he says the same thing with murder. He says, you've heard it said that thou shalt not murder all the self-righteous ones are sitting there going, oh, look at me, I've never committed murder. And he goes, but I say to you, if you've ever been angry with your brother in your heart, you've committed murder already. Why? Same principle. Anger is the heart attitude that can, but doesn't always, manifest itself in the physical act of murder. The Proverbs are full of warnings against this humanistic anger that we're talking about. And there's so many of them I didn't choose to list them because we'd be here another half hour. You can look them up on your own, and I'd encourage you to. But there's a very insightful part about anger that when we look at it in context of what James is saying here, that there's two types of anger, it makes a lot more sense to us. And that's found in Ephesians 4, uh, chapter, or sorry, verses 26 and 27, and then verse 31. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, and then verse 31. So he says this, Paul writes this in Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and do not sin. So he's saying there, if you're going to be angry, let it be that righteous anger, this type of anger that is without sin. But then he goes on to say, even if you have that kind of anger, 
don't let the sun go down on it. And he's going to explain why in a minute. And, you know, there's, there are a few times in our life when we have righteous anger. 95% of the time it's this humanistic anger. I, some of the righteous anger situations I've had in my life or in, having been in church leadership for so long, sometimes we have to deal with things like abuse cases. And, yeah, that makes you angry. It wakes you up in the middle of the night and thinks about it, or to think about it. But you know what you have to do? Every time it comes up, you've got to get rid of it before the sun goes down. That's what, what Paul is saying here. Why? Because look at the next verse. And give no opportunity to the devil. When we hold on to any type of anger, because we're not wired to hold on to it, we're opening ourselves up to the devil. And I believe one of the primary ways that works is this. Prayer is our lifeline to God. That's like our umbilical cord connecting us to God. We need to constantly be in that state of prayer with him. That's what Paul means when he says pray without ceasing and, 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 and you know, praying in all things. We're to be connected with him in prayer. When we're angry, I don't care if it's even this righteous anger of God, do we pray? I, I've never prayed when I'm angry. Maybe some of you have, but it's really hard to pray when you're angry. And so our, our anger that we don't let go of before the, before the sun goes down disconnects us from God, Cut, you know, causes a, a kink in that umbilical cord, and now we're opening ourselves up for satanic attack. We're saying, here I am. Come get me. I'm disconnected. So we don't want to hold on to even that righteous anger after the sun goes down. And to make that point even stronger, Look down at verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Let all, not just some, all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And Paul says a very similar thing in the book of uh, Colossians. In uh, Colossians 3.8, if you turn over there or look at it up on the screen, very simple. He says, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. And so since our anger is usually humanistic and self-centered, it's usually anger at someone because they have been rude to us, cut us off, or gotten in our way, because it is those kinds of things, we need to, going back to our James passage in James one nineteen, we need to, as he says there, listen more. And speak less. You know, it's an old saying, but it has great application to this, that God saw fit to make us with two ears, two eyes, and one mouth. Because we're supposed to spend more time listening and observing and processing than we are speaking. So quick to hear. Quick to hear means not just the other person, because they may have something to share with you that will help you deal with, with your own anger, but also listen to the Holy Spirit. Because he's there to speak to us. He's that small voice inside of us, and he reminds us of what God wants from us. You know, I've been blessed to be married to Janet for 44 years, but like anybody, we've had our rough patches. And I can remember times when we were like this close, face-to-face in the kitchen, and, and I was about to say something, and I literally could feel the Holy Spirit grab me by the back of the neck and say, you idiot, shut up. <laughs> don't, say, don't say that to her. You know, and, and so we need, to, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit when he's speaking to us about these things. And then it says, slow to speak. Well, why is that? It's because what comes out of us when we are filled with this humanistic anger is usually very harmful. In some cases, it results in death, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. You know the old children saying, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. 
Everyone here has had words said to them before that cause deep hurts, and we've done it to others and caused deep, deep hurts. One of my favorite presidential quotes, because it illustrates this point, is Calvin Coolidge. He was known as Silent Cal because he really didn't say much, but one of his famous quotes is, I've never gotten in trouble yet for something I didn't say. <laughs> okay, I mean, it's real simple. <laughs> it's a good way to stay out of trouble. Just don't, don't say it. When Janet and I used to teach a... Um, uh, first grade children's class uh, in Sunday school, uh, we did this illustration one time to help them understand how powerful words are and how dangerous they are. And we, we went and got a bunch of little mini toothpaste, toothpaste tubes uh, at the drugstore like you would travel with, and we got um, a, a paper towel and a toothpick. And then we explained to the kids, when you squeeze that tube, that's like those words, those angry words coming out. And then we'd say, now take that toothpick and try to put them back in the tube. You can't do it, right? And that's, that's the same thing with our words and how hurtful they can be. Now, just as when Daniel was teaching us two weeks ago about wisdom, he shared how he had had a very defining moment in his life with respect to wisdom. I also had a very defining moment in my life with respect to anger. And, and I've lived through this stuff I'm teaching you. So let me just share that with you. Um, I'd been a, it was 1991. I'd been a Christian about six years I knew I was going to heaven, I knew I was saved, but I hadn't really been discipled and taught much of anything out of God's Word, so consequently I was pretty disobedient because I didn't know what I was supposed to obey, and I was also a very angry young man still. And Janet talked me into going to a, a Christian family camp because she really wanted to go. We had uh, two very young girls at the time, three and two, and we check into this place, and it wasn't my idea of a week's vacation. Um, there, was, there were two bunk beds, I got to sleep on one level, her on the other, and the kids took one of the other levels. One folding metal chair, a sink, and the bathroom was down the hall, and you're in a building with like 40 other families in the same accommodations. I was steaming. This was not my idea of vacation. Sunday night, I was getting angry, and um, uh, Janet said, hey, she's a great wife, said, hey, honey, don't worry. We, we can check out in the morning. You know, we'll forfeit our, our deposit. And I said, I don't care. We're, you know, we're getting out of here. So we get up in the morning, Monday morning, I, we go into the lodge for breakfast. I was still angry, so I didn't stay at breakfast long. I, I went outside, and I sat down at a, at a park bench with a, with a picnic table there, and I must have had steam coming out of my ears, because up walks this guy that I've never met before. He later became one of my closest friends in the Lord. He walks up to me, and he says, you look angry. And I said, you bet I am. And I was telling him all the reasons I was angry. And he very calmly opened his Bible to Ephesians 4.26, the section I'm show I just showed you. And he said, look at this. Did you know that's sin? And you, and you don't have to be that way anymore? And, and brothers and sisters, it was almost as profound a moment in my life as my own salvation because I realized, man, I don't know his word. I don't know what God expects of me. And he's right. It is sin what I'm experiencing. And I want to be changed. I want to be transformed. And that led to my own pursuit of, of being discipled. And, and am I perfect? No. But am I a lot less angry? Absolutely. I mean, this is, this is a process. It takes a whole lifetime of work um, for God to change us. But you can see your life changed. And so, um, yeah, I was, just, I was blessed myself by the things I'm sharing with you. You know, Daniel mentioned last time that we have to kill sin at the start or else it will kill us in the end. And the same thing is very true with respect to this human anger. One thing the guy that confronted me over my sin of anger shared with me, he asked me, what makes you angry? And, and this is really stupid, but maybe when you're a young guy, a husband with a 
young kids, you might be able to relate to it. Moms probably think this is too harsh, but I would, you know, you work a hard day at the office, I drive home, and I couldn't even get my car in the driveway, let alone the garage, because it was strewn with trikes and toys and balls, and I'd have to get out and clean all those up so I could drive my car in. It was making me angry. But what kind of anger was that? Very self-focused. That wasn't righteous anger. And my friend shared with me, after explaining why that's sin, he said, you know, here's something that might help. Why don't you ask God to give you his perspective on that, give you maybe an eternal perspective on that. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, you know, Rob, there's going to come a time when those kids are 18 or 20 years old, and you're going to come home, and they're not even going to be there, let alone their toys. So rejoice. Enjoy the fact that you got stuff strewn all over your driveway. Don't get angry at it. And, and things like that can often help us change our perspective when we ask God to show us um, his perspective uh, on things. So let's read verse 21 then next. Um, he then says, uh, therefore, put away, that's that same concept, get rid of it, all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Well, logically, after what we just talked about, this verse tells us to put this kind of anger away because it was part of our old nature before salvation. It's not part of the new nature we are, the new creation in Christ that 2 Corinthians 5.17 says we are as children of God. But notice in this verse, it's not just putting these things away, it's also replacing them with something, which James says there is God's word, which is able to save our souls. You see, growing in Christ, closing that gap that we've talked about, is not just about getting rid uh, of things in our lives that are, that are sin, but it's that plus replacing them with the better things of God. A lot of times as Christians, we get trapped into the, 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 life, the deceitful lie. We think our walk with the Lord is all about what we might call sin management. In other words, we're, we're just trying to beat back all the sins in our life every day like we're playing a game of whack-a-mole with all the things that come up. And it, it, it never stops, and we wonder why. Well, see, here and many other places in Scripture where God tells us to put off the old self, put on the new self, he's saying don't just work on getting rid of some sin in your life. Replace it with something of God that's far better. You could think of it like, um, like gardening. I love to garden, and those of you that do will know that sometimes there's just patches of your garden or your yard where it's always growing weeds. And you can go out there Sunday after church and pull the weeds, a couple more weekends later, you go back and there's more weeds and you keep doing that and the weeds keep coming back. You can get really serious and go buy some, some Roundup and spray the area with Roundup and that'll keep the weeds out for maybe three months, but then after a while that dissipates and back come the weeds. The only way to stop the weeds, and they would be a picture of sin here from coming back in your life, is to plant grass. <laughs> okay, And the grass blocks out any of the weeds from germinating and coming through. And so that's this principle of, not, it's not just setting aside, it's putting on, it's taking this newness in Christ um, uh, that we are. So don't fall into that trap of sin management. But notice in verse 21, back to James, the condition we need to be in in order to receive the truth of God's word implanted into our souls so that it will transform us. It says there that we need to be meek, some translations say humble. In other words, we need to come to God's Word with a teachable spirit, wanting to submit to it, even if we don't understand it yet, because God said it, and we want to be changed by it, or else we're not going to see it do much in our lives. Years ago, I was um, 
meeting and counseling with a guy who had um, left his wife, not for biblical grounds, uh, and he ended up, you know, moving into a, a residence inn, I think it was, for several weeks. And I kept meeting with him, calling him every day, and we'd pray together, and I was really encouraging him, you know, hey, you, you got to go back and make amends, you know, and, and, and make this right with her and reconcile. And nothing was happening. Nothing, nothing, nothing was happening. Finally, one day, God put it on my heart to ask him, well, are, are you in the Word much? And he goes, oh, yeah, you know, without her around, I have all this time to study the Bible. I'm really, me and God are getting close. I'm digging into his Word. And I said, something prompted me, I'm sure it was the Spirit, to say, well, what parts of his Bible are you reading? You know what he said? I'm really focusing on those three Proverbs that talk about that it's better to live in a corner of your attic than to live with a contentious woman. And I said, really? I mean, you're not coming to God's Word intending to submit to it. You're coming to it just looking to validate your own anger that you've already got and your own decisions. So unless we come to it willing to submit to it, don't expect there to be much change. Now, praise God, he eventually did, and they, they were reunited. But um, that's what that unsubmissive heart will do. Now, what I'm talking about, um, I'll be the first to admit, sounds difficult to do, and it is difficult to do. In fact, it's impossible to do in your own strength. But God never calls us to do something that he's also not going to give us the power to do and show us how to do it. So let's look for a moment at how he empowers us to not be angry with this human anger that we've talked about. And there's several here in our text and some others in Scripture I'll share with you. And they don't have to be in this order. I'm just sharing them in this order. But the first thing we can do to help us deal with this humanistic anger is put into practice what we saw in the beginning of verse 19. Don't speak right away. Don't talk so much. Bite your tongue if you have to so that you can listen to the other person and even more important, you can listen to God in that situation. Like I heard the Holy Spirit just grabbing me by the back of the neck and saying, don't do that. And as we slow down and listen to God and listen to the other person, we can now process what is going on. Because it's often when we immediately react that we get angry and those words come out like the toothpaste out of a tube that you just can't put back in. The second thing that helps is to remember that we have a power within us that is supernatural and it's stronger than any anger will ever be, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. The same awesome power that Paul writes about in Ephesians 1, 19 through 21, which he says is the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, dwells inside each of us. They call that resurrection power. So realize you have power available to you that you need to access to help you do this because you can't do it on your own. And then when we submit to those promptings of the Spirit and the things we sense God is telling us um, and, and from His Word, what comes out of us as we submit to the rule of the Spirit in our life is what? It's the fruit of the Spirit. Not the fruit of you, the Christian, but the fruit of the Spirit. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All of those things are the exact opposite of anger. Thirdly, um, in Colossians 3.2, we're told to have this eternal perspective I talked about. For he talks there about setting our minds on the things above, a kind of learning to think with an eternal perspective. So, so take whatever you're angry at today and ask yourself, how much am I going to care about that in eternity? And you may say, well, that's kind of hard because I don't understand eternity. Neither do I. We're not going to fully understand it until we're there. But what you can do is this. You can take your worst issue today that's making you angry and ask yourself, 50 years from now, 
how's this going to affect me? And, and it begins to fade. You begin to get that eternal perspective on it that my friend was sharing with me about the, the kids' toys um, in the driveway. And God might use that to help you get rid of that anger. Fourthly, um, and lastly here, we can go back to what we learned in James the very first week, which was to pray and ask God to give us wisdom and insight into the situation that's making us angry or into the person that's making us angry so that we can have a greater understanding of the situation and, and of the person, maybe to the point where we even end up praying for them. I, I had several people come up to me after the first service and say how God had actually led them to do that with someone they were angry with and how God took away the anger once they cared enough for them and wanted to show them that same agape love that God showed them. They prayed and the anger they had left. And so you might just then find some calm and peace in the situation when you do that. But there's another reason a person could be angry, and it is that they are not yet right with God. And that's an even bigger problem than being angry. You see, God made all of us to be in a relationship with him. But if that relationship isn't right, if you're still living your life saying no to God and no to his ways and living as if he didn't exist and living ignoring him, there is no way for you to have a good relationship with others until you first get it right with God because you're just going to be angry at others. That's all that's going to come out of you. And if that even remotely resembles uh, anybody here this morning or anybody listening online, the first thing you need to do is what the end of verse 21 says, and that is receive the word of God, look at this, which is able to save your soul, which is just another way of saying to put you back in this right relationship with God. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And the word of Christ can best be summed up this way, as John 3.16 says it, this is the message of Jesus. We're going to see this at the football game today because people always carry this around on signs. But John 3.16, you should all know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so there may be some of you here this morning who need to receive that truth first before anything can be done about your anger, because your anger stems from the fact that you're not right with God. And so what you need to do is simply recognize that your soul needs saving, and then trust in Jesus to save you and give you this eternal life. Um, but as we will see next, don't stop there. Let's look at the next three verses, why I say don't stop there. Um, verses 22 to, to 25. Here James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So here we have the call to be a doer of God's word, not just a hearer only. Because while faith alone will and does save us, true faith was never meant to remain alone. It was meant to result 
in transformation and change. And it's certainly no accident that these verses I just read came right after the admonitions about anger. Because as we have seen, humanistic anger is dangerous, it's hurtful, and sometimes it's an even deadly sin. So no wonder God wants us to put it away. This calling to being a doer, not just a hearer of God's word, is not seen just here. It's seen all throughout Scripture because faith doesn't stop with just hearing. When God gave the first Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, uh, as it's recorded in Deuteronomy 6, um, he says this in verse 3, Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them. He didn't just say, hear them. He said, do them. As Daniel shared a few weeks ago when Jesus was asked, um, who are his mother and brothers? Remember how he responded? He said, my mother and brothers are those who do my will. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said in Matthew 7, 21, that those who enter the kingdom of heaven will be those who have done the will of his Father. We even see the importance of this being a doer, not just a hearer, in how several books of the Bible are organized. Let me just give you three, for example, that that Paul wrote. The book of Romans, the first 11 chapters, are all about doctrine, all about the amazing truths of our faith. But then he switches in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, in view of all these mercies of God, now live your life as a living sacrifice. And then the next five chapters go on to tell us how we live our life as a living sacrifice. Why? Because God is not just concerned that we hear, but he wants, it, wants us to put it into practice to start living it. Ephesians is the same way. Six chapters. The first three chapters are like a mini Romans, all those same truths. And then Ephesians 4.1 then calls us to this calling to walk the way that he's just taught us about in the first three chapters. Colossians, same way, four chapters. First two are about doctrine. Second two are about the application or the living out of that doctrine. So you see, knowledge of the truth is important, but not alone important. Because if the truth doesn't change us, then guess what? We are no better off than Satan and his demons. You could take someone with a bazillion PhD degrees behind them from seminary, stand them up to Satan, and Satan's still going to know theology better than they do. He knows theology perfectly, so well that he often uses it to trip people up. He tried to do that with Jesus, but Jesus, the author of it, obviously wasn't going to be tricked. He did it with Eve in the garden. So he knows the theology perfectly. What differentiates us from Satan and the demons is we at least say, yeah, I want to start doing some of this stuff. Satan just continues to live in rebellion to all of it and won't do any of it. So if the truth doesn't change us, we're really no better off than Satan and his demons. So it's been said that, and it's true, that right behavior is impossible without right knowledge. So right knowledge clearly is important. But right knowledge is no guarantee of right behavior. (laughs) It's it's ultimately our behavior that God is concerned about, and that's only going to happen as we start saying, I'm going to submit to what I'm seeing here, God, in your your word. Um, Think of it like children cleaning the room. I I love these illustrations because God says, call me father. And there's so many illustrations about father and child or mother and child that we can see about what God's calling for us. And so if you're a parent and you tell your kids, um, clean your room, right? You want them to just go clean their room. You don't want them to form a study group about, well, what did dad mean when he said clean the room? And, and um, was he, what tense was the verb that that was in? And, and what is clean after all anyways? And how clean is clean? We don't want them to go form a support group 
with other kid room challenge cleaning room cleaning challenge kids. We don't want them to go form a recovery group for kids that grew up in dirty rooms. And we don't want them to start. We don't want them to start on a 12-step program to learn how to clean their room, right? We just want them to go clean their room. And sometimes I think God looks at us and all this stuff we do, he's going, it's simple. Just please go do it. You know, stop spending so much time on these other things. So, um, yeah, I think that's how God sees it. So God is no different. When he says do it, he means just do it. One of my favorite verses on this and a number of other things is Deuteronomy 29.29, which we should have up on the screen for you. But it says that the secret things belong to the Lord. That means there's things about him we're not going to understand because we're finite, sinful, fallen beings stuck in a time-space world. And every time we open the word, we're looking into the mind of this infinite, eternal, holy being that lives outside of time and space. So, of course, you're not going to understand everything. And you wouldn't want a guy that you could fully understand because then he'd be no different than you. You want something bigger than yourself. That's the first part that the secret things belong to the Lord. But look at the second part. It says, but the things that are revealed are revealed why? So that we would know them? No, it says so that we would do them. That's what God wants. And you see, God wants us to put into practice what we do understand and stop spending so much time arguing about and debating that which we don't understand. Okay? So... Um, in verses uh, 23 to 25, that I already read, but let's go back to these, um, of James, we're given a great picture of how God sees it when we hear his word, but then don't do it. And he uses the illustration there of someone looking in a mirror, because the word of God being God's perfect standard, and it reflects where we fall short as we gaze into it. So he says, look, it's like, it's like if you're a guy, you get up in the morning, um, stumble your way into the bathroom, look at yourself in the mirror, and you see the work the midnight hairdresser has done on your hair, and it's all, you know, all messed up, and you've you got too big of a beard on. You, you know, so you think, you know, I should comb my hair, and I, I should shave. But then think how foolish it would be to see all that, do nothing about it, turn around, put your clothes on, and go to work. That's what James is saying. That's what it's like when we look into the perfect mirror of God's Word. It shows us where we fall short, and we just say, okay. We turn around and go back about life as normal. It, it, it's Stupid, and that's, that's the point he's trying to get across to us here. Note also in what James is saying here that there are two classes of hearers. There's one group who are the hearers only, and James says they're deceiving themselves. They're not blessed, he says. They have a very shallow focus because they're not persevering as they look at this mirror, and they're not challenged by what they hear. They're very forgetful, and frankly, they're not very self-aware because they can somehow look at that and see that's what I look like, but they don't understand that that's what they look like. And so they don't ask God to help them change it. The other group are those who hear and who do. And these ones, James says, are, are not deceived. They have a deep persevering focus, and they are liberated. They're set free, and they are blessed Yes, as the Bible says, the truth will set you free. But you know what? That's only if you put it into practice. Just knowing it isn't going to set you free. And it sounds like a paradoxical contradiction, and, uh, it, but it's something I'm learning over and over again all the time, even though I've been a believer 37 years. But the greatest freedom, brothers and sisters, the greatest liberation is found in the greatest submission and obedience to Christ. Because all of his rules are for our good. <laughs> all of his rules are designed to help us prosper. Now, note that verse 25 says here at the end, 
that he will be blessed in his doing. It doesn't say from the doing. You see, God's blessings all flow out of his inherent goodness and grace. We don't earn them and we don't deserve them. As James 1.16 said that we looked at last time, they are gifts and they come down to us from above. So it is in obeying him, not from obeying him, that we get blessed. So how are we blessed? Well, the Bible speaks of several. Let me just share a few with you. One is joy. Yeah, absolutely joy. There is joy in obedience. The more we do God's word, the more joyful we will actually be. One of my favorite passages of Scripture that I love to teach on is John 15, 1 through 11. It's called the the great abiding passage. Jesus is teaching his disciples on the night he's arrested how to abide in him, dwell in him, remain in him, stay connected to him after he's gone. It's a good thing for him to teach them and for us to understand as well. In verse 10 of that little discourse, Jesus says that if we keep God's commandments, we will abide in his love. Now, that doesn't mean we're earning his love, but it means we'll, we'll be living in it. We'll sense it. We'll, it'll be real to us in our lives. And right after that, speaking of that obedience, he then says this in verse 11. These things, what I just told you about obeying, I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you. And look at what kind of joy it is. That, well, that it's my joy and that your, your joy may be full. So he's saying, look, as we seek to obey God's commandments... We will have this supernatural joy in us to the fullest measure possible. And Jesus says it's his joy. Well, you know what the Bible says his joy is? Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says that for the joy set before him, Christ's joy, he endured the most horrible thing you could think of, the cross. Okay? And he's saying you can have that very same joy inside you when you seek to obey God. He will produce that um, in you. So obeying him will produce joy in us. And again, back to parenting, right? I think we all know this as parents, and all of us have been kids sometime if you've never been a parent, but kids are happier when they're obeying their parents, right? Even our dogs, if you don't have kids, are happier when they're obeying their owners. And the same thing is true of us. We are happier when we're obeying our Lord and Savior. And from my own walk with the Lord and my own stumbles and mistakes, and from counseling many others over the years, trying to help them with their stumbles and mistakes, I'm pretty confident of this almost absolute truth. I'm sure there's a few exceptions, but it is this. Show me a joyless Christian, and I'm pretty sure that somehow, somewhere in their life, I can show you a disobedient Christian, okay? Because our disobedience is going to lead to a loss of that joy. Now, another blessing that comes in the doing of God's Word is we then get a greater understanding of it because the truth of God's Word is understood in the doing of it as we, as we do it. And we see this many places in Scripture, but the easiest one to see it in is Psalm 119, uh, verse 100, where the psalm writer there says, I have more understanding than all the aged. Why? Because I keep your precepts. So he's saying, look, I, I get more understanding because I'm actually obeying what, what you're showing me. I'm, I'm, I'm keeping them. And to the limited extent we can, as these humble, finite beings, put ourselves in God's shoes for a second, try doing this. If, if, if God's looking down on, on me, maybe the other morning when I started preparing for this message, and he can see my heart, because we know he can do that, and he sees a heart that he knows is still in rebellion against him that's not going to submit to what I'm about to read, Do you think he's going to have his Holy Spirit give me any understanding of what I'm going to read? Of course not. It'd be a futile act on his part, a waste of his time. But when he sees 
one of his children come to his word with a heart that says, God, I, I, I want to submit to it. I want to do it. I want to obey it. Then he opens our eyes. And now you get to understand it. So that's why the psalm writer would say that, that he understands more than the aged because he keeps God's precepts. Still another blessing that we get to, get to experience um, when we seek to do and obey God's word is that we get to sense the power of God at work in our lives. And who doesn't want to sense that from time to time? And to see this, let's go to Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Um, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Paul says here, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he's saying in the first part there that, look, just as you sought to obey God while I was there in your midst in the, in the Colossian church, now that I'm gone, seek to obey even more and work out your salvation. He's not saying work your way into salvation because, no, it's a free gift, but the outworking of it should be these things we're talking about. And do it with fear and trembling because you're doing this in the presence of a holy God. But then look at what he says next. Because if you just stop there, you'd have bad theology and you think it's all up to you and all that you do. Second part of the verse says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so you see, it is as we take those steps of submission and obedience that God releases the power of his Holy Spirit in our lives to help us submit and obey. So you, you get to experience God's power when you make those decisions to say, okay, Lord, I'm, I'm going to do it your way. I'm, I'm going to give in, submit, surrender, and do it your way. Now, there's also some reasons, uh, some pretty common ones, why we don't obey God's word. And I don't pretend that this is an exhaustive list, but I'll, I'll just share some of, some of them with you. One is, because I've been there, I'm sure you have, but one is that we may think that God is trying to spoil our fun. We have a certain way we want to do things, and we think it'll be fun, and we think God's this cosmic killjoy up in the sky trying to ruin my fun. Well, if you go back to Deuteronomy when he lays out the law again, you will see several times God preface it by saying, I'm giving you these commandments for your good, and that you may prosper, and that the days of your life may be long. So he, his, his commandments are all there for our good. It's not to, to make life not fun for us whatsoever. Pastor Benkai and I, a few years ago, had the privilege of teaching through the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. It took us about three and a half years to do it, and it was super exciting. And we saw many things about God in there we didn't expect to see. I mean, we expected to know that he's holy. We expected to um, see signs of the coming of Messiah, all of which are in there. But here's the thing that just jumped out at us so much in the big picture that we weren't expecting to see, to our shame. It is what a God of order God is. Everything he does, he has a divine order as to how to do it. From the creation of the universe and the stars and the planets and the weather and the night and the day and all the rest of it, down to the tiniest little molecules, down to every type of relationship, whether it's husband and wife, parent and child, you know, brother and sister, church, family, government, all that stuff. He has a way that he's ordained for it to work. And yes, we live in a fallen world and there's sin in the world and it's not perfect. Is that me? Do we need our security team? <laughs> Is it okay now? Um, yes, we live in a fallen, fallen world where th things like
Everything's okay. We'll wrap it up. Use that one. All right. <laughs> yeah, All right. This one, this one okay? So, thanks, Daniel. So, yeah, we live in this fallen world, but what, what we learned is whenever we seek to live inside his divinely ordained order in any aspect of life, you know what? It generally works out. But every time we step out of that order with our sin and disobedience, it's like going right back to Genesis 1-2, we're back to the chaos that existed, and our life becomes that kind of chaos. Um, another reason why sometimes we don't obey or do God's word is we think that somehow we have to obey God on our own. And no, that's not true. We were meant to do it by the power of the Holy Spirit, this tremendous resurrection power that dwells within us, and we were meant to do it in fellowship with other believers as we share our victories and struggles with each other and what we have, have learned. So let's go to the last part of the section now, verses 26 and 27. Um, let me get back to James. I would have been reading you Philippians there. So um, James 1, 26 and 27 says this, If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James here concludes this teaching by telling us that true religion, the kind that God sees as pure and undefiled, is seen in what comes out of us because of truth, not just in knowing the truth. So if we really believe, and if we really have gazed into the mirror of his word and let it do its work, and we have seen what it reflects or shows us about our humanistic anger, then as verse 26 says at the beginning, we will bridle our tongue and keep all that hurtful stuff from ever coming out of our mouth in the first place. And if we really believe in God's mercy and love and grace, as is described all through Scripture, then as we see in verse 27, we will be a friend to those who are afflicted like widows and orphans. You know, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is, is the greatest little explanation of, of salvation and how all this works. And it basically says this, I'm paraphrasing, but it says you've been saved by grace. That's God's unearned, undeserved, unmerited favor. It's not a reward for good behavior. It's not the way the world works. It's not karma. It's more than what you actually deserve. You've been saved by that. And then it says through faith, because grace standing by itself does nothing. You have to appropriate that, receive it by faith. But then it says for good works that God has prepared beforehand that you would walk in them. So we are saved by grace through faith, but for the purpose of good works, not just so that we get to go to heaven, but so these, that these kinds of things would be coming out of us. And so our good works are not the cause of our salvation. They never are, but they are the result of it, and they are the evidence of it. So finally, at the end of verse 27, then, we're told to keep ourselves unstained by the world. And it's important as we think about this verse to understand that when James uses the word world here, and he's going to use it several other times in his book, and when we see it used like this in other parts of Scripture, it is not referring to the people of the world, because we are to love them, and we are to be out amongst them and be witnesses for Christ to them. Rather, world here in this sense refers to the ways of the world and the wisdom of the world, especially with relation to what we've been looking about here, which is anger and obedience to God. Because 
when we go home at night after work and we turn on the cable news show, and I don't care which side of the politi political spectrum they're on, or we turn on a talk show, what do we watch? We watch people getting angry with each other, talking over each other all the time. That's how the world does things. We're going to go home this afternoon and watch a sporting event, and it's really hard to watch a sporting event like we will be doing shortly without there being at least a few outbursts of anger somewhere, maybe by fans, maybe against refs, maybe between the players. That's this humanistic anger. That's how the world works. And when it comes to obeying God and submitting to him, we're going to see this in half the ads we see today. The world says, have it your way. Do it your way. Oh, in fact, you deserve it. And by all means, do what is good and that brings you the most maximum pleasure. Completely against everything we've just looked at from God's word. So... Um, that's a little bit about what James has to say here. As, as we wrap up, let me just share a couple other things with you, and then we'll have a couple songs, and I'll come up here to close us. But um, we who know Jesus are, as he prays in John 17, no longer of this world, even though we are still in it. And our ability to live differently than the world, these things we've just talked about, and to instead live more like Jesus who was himself the ultimate, perfect, and complete doer of God's word, that brings glory to God because it testifies to a world around us to the reality of the existence of this all-powerful God, and it testifies to his amazing, life-changing power. In fact, that is one of his greatest witnessing tools. I love 1 Peter 3.15 because it assures us that even if you're not very good at just proclaiming the gospel to somebody, it tells us there that when we live a life that it's evident to those around us that Jesus is our Lord, we should then be prepared to have them come ask us. We don't have to tell them. They ask us the reason for the hope that is within us, and we can then share. So what we're talking about here today is not just for God's glory. It's not just even for our good, but it's also essential to our witness to the world for Christ, that we work on closing that gap between belief and behavior don't look at anger the way the world looks at it, and don't look at obeying God the way the world looks at it, but, but do it God's way. So let me pray, and then the band will come back up here. Father God, we um, thank you for your all-powerful word, Lord. Uh, yeah, as we do gaze into your mind when we study scripture like this, um, wow, it, it, it is a mirror, Lord, and it does show us uh, where we fall short. And so I pray for myself and for each one here that in whatever way you've pricked our hearts today with some of these truths or, or how we're living our lives, Lord, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, um, change us, Lord. Make us more like Jesus. Help us to plant grass where there have been weeds um, in our life and help us to live a life that just by itself even speaks of a witness for you and to your reality and your life-changing power. We love you. We thank you, Lord. We know that we don't deserve any of this, and yet you've given it to us freely. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.